Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1960s, Americans flicked on their TV screens and saw what often felt like a wave of violence sweeping through the country. The Watts riots in L.A., major unrest at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and on it went. Four days of rioting, looting, and arson rocked the city of Detroit in the worst outbreak of urban racial violence this year. Entire blocks of homes become infernos. At least 36 are killed, more than 2,000 injured, and damage topped the half-billion mark. Lots of riots had specific triggers, like the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Here's a CBS report on riots in Washington, D.C., the day after King was killed in 1968. Three deaths have been reported in the Washington rioting so far. There are no details yet on the circumstances surrounding them. More than 350 persons have been treated for injuries, among them several policemen and firemen. And what many Americans worried was happening, a spike in crime, was indeed happening. Murder rates are often measured as the number of murders per 100,000 people. Well, in 1960, there were about five murders per 100,000 people. By the mid-1970s, that number had skyrocketed to 10. It was a huge shift, and the murder rate stayed high through the 70s, through the 80s. In the early 90s, it was still holding around 10. And remember, back in 1960, it had been at 5. People wondered what horrors the year 2000 or 2010 would bring. And then something strange started to happen. In the mid-1990s, the murder rate began to fall. And it kept falling. It fell so low, it hit 1960 levels. In the last couple of years, some cities have seen murder rates decline further. Some have seen them rise. Murder rates in New York are, so far, up this year. But here's a point of comparison to get a sense of how drastically things have changed in 30 years. In 1990, more than 2,000 people were murdered in New York City. In 2018, the number was in the 200s, which leads to some crucial questions. How did this societal change occur, and what does that change tell us about the future? Patrick Sharkey is a professor of sociology at New York University, and he's the author of the book Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. I talked to him last fall about why this decline in violence ever happened in the first place. Well, I think there's lots of evidence that in that period, in the early 1990s, crime was really seen as a national crisis. And and crime had been high for a long time, as you mentioned. But it was at that moment that Democrats kind of took on crime and violence as a central part of their platform, whereas the Republicans had always claimed that issue as their own. And the nation as a whole mobilized at that moment to deal with what was seen as a national crisis. And, And so... At that time, in the, in the early 1990s, it's really the point at which a whole bunch of changes happened. We expanded police forces, so that came about because of President Clinton's crime bill. Uh, mass incarceration continued to rise. But then a whole bunch of other changes occurred. Private security guards proliferated. And what I argue in the book is that residents of the most disadvantaged communities, the places hit hardest by violence, also started to mobilize to deal with the problem of violent crime in their own communities. And as all of these changes kind of uh, happened at the same time, our urban streets changed. And, And the argument I make in the book is that that's really the explanation for why violence started to fall on a large scale at that moment. So you, uh, so you kind of identify three things there. One is the infusion of money in some ways, which is like hiring more police officers. The other was um, Clinton's crime bill. Uh, so that's a sort of legislative approach. Um, 
And and the other is this idea of people in the communities themselves getting involved. What precipitated that? Why at that moment did people say, I'm going to form an organization that's going to try to help stem violence in this neighborhood? Yeah, it's a good question. So a, a big part of the answer is that the nonprofit sector had been starved for a long time and, and there just weren't state and federal funds that were devoted to local community organizations. So with the reemergence of of funding for local community organizations, that played a big role. Hmm. And, and communities all of a sudden had access to, to new funding. But really larger than that, it was a mobilization. It was a kind of recognition that this problem had, had reached catastrophic levels. And in the communities that were hit hardest, it was a crisis. It was an actual crisis. And, right. and so residents got together. They had been doing this for a long time, but there was really this expansion of local community organizations, mostly nonprofits, that came together during that time. And in the book, we present evidence this just hasn't been looked at as a primary factor causing the crime job. But we generate national evidence to to make the causal case that this expansion of local community organizations actually played a causal role in reducing violence and should be seen as a central change that happened during that period. And when you talk about the uh, organizations that have the greatest capacity to control violence but have been uh, historically underfunded, what kinds of organizations are those? So those are community organizations that do lots of different things. Those are boys and girls clubs. Those are substance abuse addiction treatment programs. Those are prisoner reentry programs. Those are after-school programs. So these are all organizations that rely heavily on government funding to do their job. These are the kinds of organizations that provide what my colleague Eric Kleinenberg calls the social infrastructure of a community. They stabilize a community. They ensure that a neighborhood is not going to go downhill even when it goes through a bout of joblessness or concentrated poverty. These are the types of organizations that are crucial to making sure that violence doesn't emerge. And we've just never provided the investment to make sure that these types of institutions and organizations are sustained over time, that people know they're going to be there in 10 years, that they have the resources to do their jobs effectively. This might seem like a strange question, but in what ways uh, do you feel like the reduction in crime and the policies attached to that, the legislative policies, the hiring of more police, the putting more people in prison, in what ways do you feel like those things improve communities? And in what ways do you feel like those things harmed communities? Yeah, well, I think the most important consequence is that this collection of programs, uh, there's really strong evidence that together this set of programs reduce violence. And the benefits of the crime drop are enormous. So a big chunk of the book just focuses on the consequences of the crime drop, where I show very clearly that the most substantial benefits went to the most disadvantaged segments of the population. That's in terms of education, economic mobility, life expectancy, and so forth. Now, the other side of that is that the greatest cost of these changes that took place have also been experienced by the most disadvantaged segments of the community. And those costs have come in the form of aggressive or violent policing, uh, intensive surveillance, and the continued rise of, of mass incarceration. So, you know, what I'd argue is that the crime drop has generated tremendous benefits, but the methods that we got there, the methods that we used to get there have also generated substantial costs. So then the question is, how do we continue to reduce crime 
but how do we do it in a different way? How do we develop a different set of methods? Hmm. Um, one thing that you write about that really struck me is that uh, most Americans are not aware of this incredible drop in crime, that homicide rates uh, were cut in half between the 1990s and 2014. You say most Americans don't trust government statistics on this. Like when they're asked, they say, I, you know, I don't think that crime has dropped uh, to that extent. And so in some ways, this thing that you're chronicling, this thing that you've spent your life working on, a lot of people don't even believe the thing is happening. How do you like think about that and square that? Yeah, that's the challenge of, of, of studying and really generating public debates on, on crime and violence. Because most people are not direct victims. So they, right. they develop a sense of how much violence is out there based on the media, based on politicians, based on what they see when they look out into the world. And as we know, we've seen very you know, intentional and conscious distortions of how much violence is, is out there. And it doesn't just come from you know, President Trump. It, it comes from... Um, advocates on the left who, who want to maintain an urgency for dealing with violence. It comes from politicians on the right who don't want to acknowledge when, when the behavior of the poor has actually changed in a very tangible and, and visible way. So there are big challenges in uh, just presenting empirical evidence on how much violence is out there. We actually started a website, AmericanViolence.org, that was designed to deal with this. And the goal is to just get evidence out there in a very easily accessible and comprehensive and accurate way so that cities, we know how much violence is out there. We know how violence is changing. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Patrick Sharkey, a professor of sociology at NYU. He's the author of the new book, Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. When you look across the country... What cities or what places, I guess it doesn't have to be cities, have seen the biggest drops in crime? The biggest drops have come in, you know, well-known places. New York used to have over 2,200 murders every year. There were 290 last year. I mean, this scale of change is just shocking. It's stunning. But other cities have experienced similar changes. Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Dallas, and Fort Worth. These are places that were intensely violent. D.C. used to have the highest murder rate in in the country. It has fallen by 75% or more uh, since the early 1990s. So the most visible changes that have taken place are present in L.A. and D.C. and and Mm -hmm. New York. But there are a whole bunch of cities around the country where violence has fallen by more than half and where the cities have really started to transform. These were intensely violent places. In fact, about half of major cities in, in across the country in the early 1990s had extreme levels of violence, levels of violence over 20 murders per 100,000 people. And that has fallen to a, a very small number of cities at this point. Um, Chicago, of course, gets a lot of national attention for murders. Is it an outlier here or, or is it not? Well, Chicago has the most murders, um, and that's part of the reason why they get so much attention. And things have changed for the worse over the past few years. They've had a a large increase uh, in murders. So I think that's a big part of the reason that we focus on on Chicago. But they certainly don't have the highest murder rate. Cities like New Orleans, St. Louis has the highest murder rate in the country right now. Mm. So there are other smaller cities where I think the problem is more intense. And, you know, you can tell how much the conversation is distorted now, I'm not saying Chicago has solved its problem 
it still has a crisis on its hand. Um, but there actually has been an improvement, and you would never guess that based on the coverage of Chicago. Hmm. Talk a little bit about when a city changes, as we've seen, you know, the, the uh, rates of violence in a city changes, as we have seen just happen in this incredible way in the last just about quarter century now. How does the city start to look different and feel different when you walk through it? I mean, just, you know, take me to a city and talk about how it's different now than maybe it once was. Yeah, well, the city I know best is New York. You know, um, I I tell a story at the start of the book about a park in the Bronx that used to be, it was in the Bonfire of the Vanities featured as, as a place where you know, no one, no court officers would go, even if, if uh, they were armed. No one would dare enter that park. And I start the book by talking about what it looks like now. And, you know, it's it's not like the problems have gone away. The problems of poverty are still in America's major cities, in New York as well. But they don't come with violence automatically anymore. So one of the major features of urban poverty back from the 70s through the 1990s was that if you were poor and lived in a central city, you were constantly exposed to the threat of violence. That's still present in a lot of cities and a lot of neighborhoods, but it's no longer present all over the country. There are lots of places like New York where poverty no longer comes with the constant threat of violence. So it just changes daily life. It changes the nature of public space. It means that families are willing to invest in a neighborhood. Parents are willing to have their kids out and enjoy public playgrounds, parks, libraries, and so forth. Teachers are more willing to invest in a school district. Business owners are more likely to set up shop. So these are some of the mechanisms that lead to the the findings uh, that I show in the book where as violence falls, we have causal evidence that it doesn't just improve life expectancy, but it improves kids' ability to learn. Mm -hmm. It improves kids' ability to find jobs in early adulthood and to move upward out of poverty as they, as they leave adulthood. So I really argue that it transforms the nature of public space and really allows us to live the ideal of what city life should be, where public life is, is a collective experience where people come together and trust each other and feel welcomed in public spaces. That's only possible when violence goes away. Um, I talked about we started by talking about the murder rate going from five out of every hundred thousand people in in 1960 to ten about in the in the 1970s, so doubling. Then it gets cut in half by half by 2014. Um, but you say in the last couple of years, right? It's ticked up a little bit. What do you see happening? Well, we've had a model for dealing with violent crime for the past 50 years. Uh, that has relied heavily on the police and the prison. That's been our response to deal with violence. Around 2014, that model started to break down. And it broke down because, A, the violent crime rate was at a historic low point, but, B, because people started seeing what was going on. People started noticing mass incarceration. And so as the Black Lives Matter movement formed and became one of the most successful social movements we've seen in decades— as Michelle Alexander wrote her book, the, uh, the New Jim Crow and Mass Incarceration became more well-known, I think there was a widespread understanding that something had to change. Now, what's happened in the years since is that cities have really struggled to develop a new model. So no, no new model of how to deal with violent crime has formed. I think for the past 50 years, our, the default model has been to focus on punishment. 
as a solution to violence. I think we now have sufficient evidence to propose a new approach, an approach that focuses on investment. And when I talk about investment, I don't just mean investment in community residents and organizations. That has to be central, but that's not it. I'm also talking about investment in police departments so that there is actually a pathway forward for changing the way that law enforcement interacts with residents. We can't expect police departments who have been told to dominate public spaces by any means necessary for the last few decades, we can't expect them to just change overnight without training, without new efforts to understand how to communicate better with residents. So the broad answer is that I think we we need a mindset shift, a shift from a focus on punishment toward a focus on investment. What makes me concerned is that a lot of what goes on in local neighborhoods is, you know, it's a very local process, but it's driven by funding going to states and the federal government. So when we have a $1.5 trillion tax cut, well, at some point, that's going to trickle down and affect the organizations that play the greatest role in confronting violence. So really, when I look over the long term, I worry that that the stability of, of those groups and those institutions and those organizations, and I don't just mean nonprofits, I mean schools, I mean law enforcement agencies, I mean religious congregations. These types of organizations are, are going to be compromised uh, at some point, and that's my biggest concern looking forward. Patrick Sharkey is a professor of sociology at NYU and author of the book Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Patrick Sharkey last fall. And if you want to learn more about crime rates in various cities, we've got a bunch of links for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And Sharkey himself has a website where he tracks the numbers. It's AmericanViolence.org. 